Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast for April 8th, 2021. How are you? I'm doing fine, David. How are you? Episode 54. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I think this will be an interesting episode, and I have just basically Googled it and taken the top three articles that were there today, and they're all from the last day or two. Uh, This is something I've been hearing about for the last month or so. There is a shortage of microprocessors. And I'm very interested to sort of get into learning about this because I don't know much about this. I hear it in the tech news. Oh, the global semiconductor shortage. And I hear, oh, it's going to affect this industry and that industry uh, because semiconductors are everywhere. But I don't really sort of know the breadth and depth of it. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. And also, from what I understand, I don't know that much about it uh, either, the story. Uh, But from what I understand, a lot of the uh, risk has to do with the supply chain and how the supply chain can can supply them, either from the source or the distribution uh, or the logistics of it. Yes, so I have three articles pulled up, and I just chose these three because I Googled it. These three were near the top. One is from Ars Technica, so that is a tech... uh, tech website. So we're getting it from the tech perspective. The other article is from Bloomberg, which is a financial website. So we're getting it from the financial perspective. And then the final one is from Roadshow, which is an automobile website. So I hear just from my, you know, listening to the news that the automobile industry is actually uh, suffering the worst because they need chips, but they don't have first dibs. A lot of the tech companies do. So your your Apples and your Dells and and your uh, IBMs, they get first crack at the or your Amazons. You know, for the data center, they need a lot of processing power, and so the automakers get left in the lurch. But you can't really produce an, a modern car without uh, semiconductors. So they're getting screwed. So I have one from each perspective. Do you have any? suggestion of where we start hmm uh let's start at the small guy and then go up okay uh does that sound good which one is the small guy well the 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 cars the automobiles because okay. there's a lot of people who need semiconductors not just automobiles mm-hmm. we can look at the financial aspect of it uh but then uh, i don't know uh, what, what, which, where would you like to start? I'm just trying to think how can we understand it best. So if we look at how it's affecting an industry, then we sort of backpedal to say this is what the tech news is saying about it. And then we say, and then this is what the financial news. Yeah, so let's start with the cars just to see how it's affecting an industry. Okay. Um, and, of course, this is just one news story, so it's not a summary. But uh, the news story is from Roadshow. CNET.com slash Roadshow. Should I, do you want me to put the link in chat so you can pull it up on your machine as well? Okay. Okay, I'm putting this in chat real quick. All right. Did you get it? Yes. So that's the... That's the article we're looking at. Uh-huh. And um, so I'll just start reading it just so that we can understand. As you can see, it's from April 6, 2021. So just a couple days ago. 
Automakers asked U.S. government for help with the semiconductor shortage. The industry is looking to get its own dedicated chip allocation in to avoid supply issues in the future. In case you hadn't heard, there's a global silicon chip shortage. In addition to causing problems for people trying to build gaming computers, it's giving serious trouble to automakers worldwide. It's gotten bad enough that, according to a report published Tuesday by Automotive News, a coalition of automakers have asked the U.S. government for help. The group called the Alliance for Auto Innovation, suggests that the government mandate that silicon suppliers set aside a dedicated amount of automotive-grade silicon to reduce the likelihood that continued silicon shortages would impact automotive production. Presently, the group estimates that U.S. automakers could produce over a million fewer cars this year due to the current shortage. President Joe Biden has already taken steps to address the silicon problem. This includes asking Congress to authorize $37 billion to help increase silicon production inside the U.S. His order also launched a 100-day supply chain study for four major industries, semiconductors, EV batteries, pharmaceuticals, and rare earth minerals. According to Automotive News, the automotive industry has been particularly hard hit by this chip shortage because of actions taken early on in the pandemic namely the idling of factories. The halts in production instituted by vehicle manufacturers also forced them to cancel orders of components and raw materials, including semiconductors. The, com the companies that make those chips then pivoted to selling them to other industries as a result. As cars continue to become more technologically advanced and therefore more heavily dependent on computers, this kind of supply chain disruption will continue to be a factor that automakers will have to find contingencies for particularly if the Biden administration's legislation ends up being less far-reaching than intended. Okay, that's the automotive perspective. Yep. It's fascinating. Um, so we say there's a shortage, and it's affecting the auto industry because they had to sort of suspend their orders because they'd shuttered factories. Well, they found buyers for those, that they had they would have had in hand so they don't have those in hand and now there's a shortage so they can't order more it does not get to the point of why is there a shortage that's not one thing that we learned from reading this article no the only the only thing the only thing they were saying was that uh they halted production because of that they sold it elsewhere but it sounds like they just can't come back because they they've locked themselves into contracts Mm -hmm. uh, and so they can't come back, uh, and they can't increase production. They don't have the resources to increase production. Yes. You have the production side, then you have the distribution side, uh, uh, upstream down in the midstream. Uh, and I'm wondering if uh, where the sources are, where are these being produced? Well, in other words, I believe you, the biggest foundries are in. South Korea, Taiwan, the United States, and Israel. And it's do the, I mean, that's for the, the high end semiconductors. And now I know that China is investing heavily in semiconductor manufacturing processes as well. Um, as the world goes digital, the demand for semiconductors just grows and grows and grows. Right. Yep. So that's the, uh, that's really just stating the problem. So sort of, there's yeah. no solution. There is no solution there, but now we know that uh, you know the, we knew that, and so they're saying how how bad it is. And one cause is that uh, they hauled a production, and then they found other buyers, and all of a sudden, uh, 
they couldn't come back for some one reason or the other, which we don't know why. Well, I think in a lot uh, of other years, you would just be able to go buy it off the shelf. This is sort of like if you needed toilet paper 12 or 13 months ago, and you go to the grocery store and it's all gone because everyone's freaking out. Well, all the silicon is gone. You can't reorder it. So the fact that you sort of slept on or you suspended your orders, and you're like, oh, we'll just order it later. Well, now there's no supply. Well, I think another issue from this article is that the uh, president has taken steps uh, to a 100-day uh, supply chain study for four major industries, which was semiconductors was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think uh, because of the globalization uh, this past decade or so, that uh, the national security uh, is much more than it used to be. And I think uh, resources, uh, uh, critical commodities that really need to be examined because those commodities really impact the national security of, of the United States because of the, uh, the, uh, the use and the, the, the uh, expanded use that we have of them with all of our infrastructure. Yes, and I think that the four that he soloed out, I mean, if we did a deep dive, they do each uh, very much have market and national security impacts. So semiconductors, electric vehicle batteries, pharmaceuticals, and rare earth minerals. Um, right. I do know that for some bog standard generic antibiotics, because there's no margin on them, we don't produce them in America. We just say, oh, we can import them from India or China or whatever. And they're absolutely essential. When someone gets an infection, you use penicillin or amoxicillin or, you know, they're the or zithromycin. I don't know exactly which ones they are, but we don't produce them here. And they're the common generic ones. And that's the reason why we don't produce them. There's no margin. So we have a dependency on foreign production capacity for low margin antibiotics. And that leaves us vulnerable in some respect because we don't have the productive capacity to make those on a scale that's necessary. It's, it's fascinating when you think about if you allow the market to make all the decisions, the market may make decisions because companies are driven by individual profit that sort of weakens your national security position because you don't have the ability to make the the uh, antibiotics you need to fight bacterial infections. That's true. But also notice notice what this says, though, what you showed. It's a, it's a supply chain study. So he's not really looking at the sourcing of the uh, the materials. Mm-hmm. He's looking at the the uh, the supply chain to get them to uh, their destination here. He's looking at the ups, up, upstream type of a supply chain, not necessarily production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, when you look at that, semiconductors can be produced here, and they are. EV batteries here. Pharmaceuticals could be produced here if we had the capacity. But rare earth minerals are not. They are where they are. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't manufacture rare earth minerals. They are where they are. And so if you're looking at a supply chain for the rare earth minerals, that just means that uh, there's some place that we need we need uh, to to get them. Uh, so the, the idea is we have to go where they are. We can't produce them in-house. The, the, therefore, uh, where the rare earth minerals reside, 
and the supply chains uh, are important for the distribution and logistics. But then again, the source is going to be important. So that's going to play into politi- the political uh, foreign policy. Yes. And so I know for a fact that there are a lot of rare earth mineral mines in China and that their control of the rare earth mineral supply is greater than the United States because of that fact. Also, they have invested heavily, not in gold and diamond mining in Africa, but in rare earth mineral mining. Because there are the rare earth minerals like neodymium. I remember this from about 10 years ago um, when there was a trade dust up with the United States and Japan, China just restricted the supply of neodymium. And neodymium is used, I think, in electric vehicle batteries. It was used in Toyota Prius batteries at the time, I remember. And there was this concern that we wouldn't be able to get it. Now we solved those trade issues and made concessions or whatever. But I also, there was a bass guitar uh, company at the time called Mark Bass. And their whole thing, uh, do you see these yellow drivers? Yes. So instead of Alnico, which is the traditional material that you'd use to make a base uh, driver on your speaker, which is uh, alloy of aluminum, nickel, and cobalt, this company was making their drivers out of neodymium. Now, the tone was similar, but the big difference was the weight was one-fifth. So these giant refrigerator base cabs that people would use all through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, they would weigh 200 pounds. You could get a refrigerator base cab with neodymium cones in it, and it would weigh 50 pounds. And so these, I remember, you couldn't get them for a few few months because they couldn't source the neodymium to continue production of them. And uh, it's interesting, just little things like that, rare earth minerals, if there's a uh, supply shortage, it has fundamental effects in, in the industries that use those supplies. And it's difficult if you're not in that industry to care or to think about, but it's a real thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make the news until it's something as ubiquitous as semiconductors. Right. Semiconductors that hit the news. Well, uh, these uh, pharmaceuticals or earth minerals uh, the supply chain and sourcing has always been around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, when it becomes severe, like the pandemic, uh, these things come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. So I think we can move on to a second article, don't you think? Okay. Um, I'll leave the link. I kind of want to go into the Ars Technica article because that's the tech. They may um, explain perhaps more thoroughly the origins of the shortage of the semiconductor shortage. So do you have it pulled up? Yeah. Okay. Chip shortage shows no sign of abating may drag into 2022. It's not just manufacturing capacity. Wafer and packaging remain constrained. So wafer is the actual silicon wafers that they use to make semiconductors. Auto manufacturers and other companies are hoping that the global chip shortage will end soon, but snarled semiconductor supply chains may not untangle until next year. The mess began when the pandemic 
upended the market for semiconductors. As demand for cars plummeted, automakers slashed their orders. But at the same time, demand for chips that power laptops and the data center skyrocketed. That bifurcation shifted the market, and when car and truck sales rebounded, semiconductor manufacturers rushed to meet demand. Soon, though, shortages of key components emerged. The industry is known for planning and for its long lead times, so it could take a while for the chip market to short itself out, sort itself out. There seems to be a broad consensus that it will stabilize by the end of the year, Chris Richard, principal in Deloitte's supply chain and network operations practice, told ours. But if I go back to 2008 and the financial crisis, it was a couple years after the rebound started before everything smoothed out again. It's not just manufacturing capacity that's hard to come by. Shortages of wafers and packaging substrates are compounding the problem. Those have hit the automatic automotive se sector especially hard, Richard added. A drought in Taiwan and a fire at a Japanese fab, that's a fabrication facility, they fabricate chips, threatened to add to the industry's woes. Many of the chips in shortest supply, including those destined for the automotive sector, are made using older processes. These mature nodes are typically well understood, and many fabs run them near the limits of their capacity, meaning there's not a lot of slack in the system. In other industries, shortages like this can be solved more easily. Customers can simply place orders with other manufacturers to meet temporary spikes in demand. But automakers are unlikely to dial up a new supplier, since it takes about three to six months, sometimes more, to qualify chips from a new factory. And semiconductor manufacturers are likely to build new fabs to meet what might prove to be a temporary surge in demand. In the end, the best bet for both sides is to push for more production at existing fabs. Um... Before we go into the second part, should we discuss this first part? Because I think that there's a lot there. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he does uh, hit a lot of things. Um, and I didn't have the article up while we while I was reading it, but it doesn't matter. You heard it. I heard it. Um, yeah. So as a supply chain management professor, what do you see in that just just in that introduction? I think, as I said, the Ars Technica article is more about the sources of the problems. Well, as the demand changes, uh, supply chains have to be uh, agile to shift. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like uh, that they were at capacity. Uh, they were not. They did not have slack uh, to shift uh, when the demand changed. So when the demand changed and the supply shift shifted, uh, they they were pretty rigid. Mm -hmm. uh, they were locked in and they couldn't come back. And so... You have to design a supply chain to be agile. Uh, you can't just just do it automatically. Uh, and agility doesn't just mean logistics. It means your supplier. It means your production. It means your everything. And it sounds like uh, the in order to make things efficient and low cost, uh, they made these supply chains very rigid where it was hard uh, to move and respond to changes. That's what it seems like. That's what it sounded like to me uh, when he was explaining this. But I also, I mean, I, I get that. Yes, they have long lead times. It's not, they're not very agile. But also the once in a century pandemic, I mean, hopefully it's once in a century. We could have another coronavirus two years from now. It's true. And, you know, uh, but the first huge pandemic we've had in a hundred years sort of greatly shifted demand within an industry so it's not like um obviously no one 
was buying cars or whatever. So they're not ordering chips. But for the semiconductor manufacturers, it's like, but the data center and the home user, they're picking up that slack. So let's let them do it. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Not make money? I mean, there's no way that they could have, with their lead times, forecasted that a pandemic would cause the auto industry to order way fewer chips. And there is no way that they could have forecasted with their lead times that because the auto industry was ordering fewer chips, the home consumer in the data center would be ordering more chips. It's just all, it was sort of a happy accident that when one went down, the other went up for the semiconductor industry. But now the other one's coming back up and it's like, oh crap. Like we moved to use our productive capacity to help this other industry so that we weren't just sitting on our thumbs. But now we can't help both. It's it's a fascinating, I don't know, supply chain is a very fascinating subject. That's right. That's right. And if you want to position yourself for uh, your service levels to service your customers, uh, but also to have, do it at a low cost, uh, you're going to lock yourself in. But when you start locking yourself in and things change, uh, it's hard. It's hard to shift uh, to the to the shift in demand uh, when you lock all your production and all your capacity in, into one downstream uh, demand. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. It's challenging. Uh, but the question is, if you are going to make it flexible, uh, then uh, how do you do that? Uh, and also, do you do that at a cost? It costs money to be flexible. Mm-hmm. And so our, where's, where's the, the uh, inability to have low cost? It's going to be a little bit more expensive to do that. Uh, where's that money coming from? Yes. And so, so when you have really tight margins, you don't have the margins uh, to be that flexible. And I think that my story that I just I just made it up, but I'd heard this about the pharmaceuticals being produced elsewhere. You're sort of seeing that in this example as well. It's not like so I have a Samsung phone. It has a Qualcomm chip in it. You have an Apple phone. It has an Apple chip in it. Um, these are extraordinary chips. We're using uh, uh, PCs with Intel uh, CPUs in them. They're extraordinary chips. That's not what there's a shortage of. I mean, I guess on, there's the the graphics cards there's a shortage of. But what there there's a shortage of is the chips that are really cheap to manufacture. The chips that control little things that are just one-offs because there's no margin in them. So you only have what you need to produce. But if you don't produce that one chip, you can't do specific, very specialized things. It's sort of like not producing the really cheap antibiotics here in America because there's no margin. But then you don't have that productive capacity. You're sort of punting that to someone else. So there's not a lot of incentive to build additional fabrication dyes for the cheap chips because there's no margin. Why wouldn't you build them for the new, more expensive chips? Because that's where the margin is. It's, it's tough. Well, there's there's been articles over the years uh, in supply chain that says when you look at at uh, resources and especially commodities uh, that has a low margin, but when you look at sourcing and when you look at items, uh, their their importance to the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two aspects to it. One are supply risk and the other financial risk. So the financial risk is a margin. The supply risk is going to be the uh, the integral nature of the of the uh, of the commodity or the product. 
That's exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So there's really two things you need to look at, you know, the supply risk uh, and uh, of how, how critical it is and also the financial risk on, the, on your margin. And usually if there's a large margin, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, there's more than one place you can source it. But with a commodity, uh, the you can have multiple sources, okay? But a lot of times, because of the low margin, those sources are already taken. Mm -hmm. And that, that that's, there's where uh, you have to be, you have to design flexibility into your supply chain, and that's not always driven by, by uh, money, by cost. So, and uh, I like to, I go to the North American Music Merchants Convention every year, and I, well, not the last couple of years, not since the cops kicked down my door, but that's a story for another day. Um, but I have, a, I, I like to take video footage of it and audio footage, and because it's a music festival, I like to have very good audio. So I have a separate digital recorder that sits on top of my digital camera. And so the camera takes a very good image. The recorder takes very good audio. So one year I went and I had my recorder and I had my camera. I get to the, the venue and I'd forgot this little piece of metal that slides into the top of the camera that connects the recorder to the camera. Well, I'd be walking around with two hands. You can't really shoot with one hand and record with the other. You, you kind of want it all to be in one rig. So I had to drive to a camera store and buy this little piece of metal. The little piece of metal was eight bucks. <laughs> The Uber to and from the camera store was 30, 40 bucks. <laughs> but the thing is, that's what's happening. These, these chips that are, like they say, the older uh, chips, uh, many of the chips in the shortest supply are made using older processes. They're not the marquee things. They're not your camera. They're not your, your recorder. They're the little piece of metal that connects one to the other. But without that, your product doesn't work. So you have to pay the Uber 20 bucks to and from just to get an $8 little piece of metal to connect your recorder to your camera. That's my analogy from my personal experience to what's going on here. It's that's applicable, a, right? That's a very, very good story. And it illustrates uh, the risk aspects of supply chains uh, as, as important as the monetary aspects of a supply chain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I bet Chris Richards, the principal in Deloitte's uh, supply chain and network operations, uh, I'm sure he he could he would say the same things. He sees that. He's, he lives it every day, mm -hmm. that you have risks associated with these. And a lot of the risks are with the simple commodities because the margin is so low. And uh, you try to have multiple suppliers, but sometimes uh, uh, because the margin is so low that you lock them in for long periods of time. And when they shift, you can't come back. So the risk part of it is going to be expensive, but I mean, lowering the risk is expensive, but sometimes it's worth it, mm -hmm. especially these days. Actually, it's going to be more worth it in supply chains these days because in the past 10, 20 years, because of technology and globalization, things have gotten so fast that things don't don't happen years. They happen months or weeks. And so things things change so quickly that you have to be able to change more quickly. And if you change quickly, uh, then you can stay stay in the race and stay mm -hmm. in the game. But that's going to cost money. And so people, companies have a hard time spending the money for that risk mitigation. Yeah, I, I think of, I mean, this is another analogy, but when they do construction projects on roads and they say, oh, there's a lot of people moving to this area. So for the next two years, we're going to screw up traffic to make the road 
just big enough to be too small for the people that have moved here in the last two years. That happens, right? Well, that's the one way to put it, David. I like that. I like that. That's one of it. All that means is they're building it for for the demand today and not tomorrow. Yes. Or they're yeah. building it for the demand two years from now, but it's going to take two years to finish. And by the time it's finished, you're at peak capacity. By the time That's you right. finish and you need to start the process all over again. So you've inconvenienced people really to no true benefit. Shall we continue with the article? <laughs> okay. Okay. That, yeah. Okay. A scramble. Chip manufacturers have responded by ramping up production on their existing lines where they can, but that's difficult in fabs already running above 90% capacity. To free up more production, they're trying to tweak production rates on existing machines, request early deliveries for tools they've already ordered, and squeeze more of those tools into space-constrained factories. It's just a big scramble, Richard said. For many car companies, chip problems have been made worse by the fact that companies are often several steps removed from semiconductor manufacturers. I think that's kind of what I was saying with um, Samsung or Apple or Amazon. They get first bite at the proverbial Apple, and car companies are a little further down the totem pole. Um, Over the years, as cars have incorporated more advanced technologies, automakers have outsourced the production of more and more parts to suppliers. That distant relationship stands in sharp contract with con- computer and electronics companies, which often work directly with semiconductor companies. Together, they command about 60 to 70% of the chip market, while automotive customers account for less than 10%. The current chip crisis and the trend toward electrification are factors likely to change how car companies interact with semiconductor manufacturers. While today's fossil fuel-powered vehicles use plenty of chips, electric vehicles promise to use more, especially as advanced driver assistance systems, or ADAS, become more widespread in the coming years. The coincidence of the chip shortage and electrification will change how auto executives view their relationship with semiconductor manufacturers, Richard said. Automakers will likely work much more closely with chip companies in the future, even if the resulting car parts are made by several different suppliers. Some companies have fared better than others. Toyota, for example, requires suppliers to stockpile two to six months of parts as a buffer against supply chain problems. The company developed the plan in the wake of the Fukushima earthquake in 2011, and it has left the company producing when others have idled some plants. Other automakers are waiting on parts. Uh, We'll have to wait a bit more. Making chips is a slow process. Even when manufacturing capacity is in place, it can take up to 26 weeks to produce a chip from the time the order is placed, said Falun Yinung, the Director of Industry Statistics and Economic Policy at the Semiconductor Industry Association. That's just the physics of manufacturing chips, he said. Good news is coming, but you can't speed up the process. I think that article was more informative than the road and track article or whatever. I guess I should get it right since we read it. The Roadshow article. Don't you? Yeah, the other one. Just, it just say, hey, we have a, there's a problem. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is a little bit more on uh, what the problem is and going deeper into supply chain. Mm-hmm. And this is more of an operations perspective. So that's sort of more your bread and butter. It's not the financial implication. It's, you know, the, the lead times that they order. And, of course, Toyota, seeing that an act of God can mess up your has required uh, more buffer of parts. And so they're still producing while other auto manufacturers aren't. All this stuff is it's fascinating. And then, of course, relationships with your suppliers. So the telecommunications industry and the tech industry, they have 
deeper and more integrated relations with semiconductor manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Auto, the auto industry doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yep. And notice it take and take up to 26 weeks to produce a chip. Falang Yanung, director of the industry statistics, say. So therefore, you have very, very long lead times. And so how do you forecast your need? Well, you've got to really ameliorate. You've got to lower the risk of fluctuations in the demand, which we've seen with the pandemic. You have to look at the, uh, you have to mitigate those risks by, with long lead times, with a lot of buffer. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's exactly what Toyota did. That was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they stockpile it. And the, uh, what, what, another thing, too, over the years, what has happened is that uh, uh, you're looking at uh, just stockpiling existing technology, but then as technology advances, uh, are there ways to shorten that uh, delivery time, to shorten the lead time, 26 weeks down to 20, 10, five weeks? Uh, people have done that uh, in other industries. Uh, and so uh, as technology ex- the advances in technology needs to focus on where the the weak links are. Uh, and so right now they're just reacting uh, and so to uh, to the problem. And hopefully technology is just looking in the future to be proactive to say, well, how can we shorten these times mm-hmm. instead of uh, in the supply chain when you have uh, 26 weeks long lead times, you have to have buffer buffer inventory. But if you can shorten the time, that's 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 more technology based. But it sounds like the guy said that's just the physics. Well, maybe that's just going to be a subject for another uh, another uh, episode of, for us to look at. Uh-huh. Uh, how how is the technology focusing on shortening uh, the production time, uh, the physics, and the metallurgy and the production part uh, of uh, shortening that time of making a chip? But. My question is, if that is just the physics, like uh, a 50 cent chip takes 26 weeks, a thousand dollar chip takes 26 weeks. That's just how long it takes to make a chip. Um, Shouldn't people that rely on that supply factor that production time into their calculations of ordering? I mean, if that's not going to change, it's like, you know, I want a baby. It's like, okay, well, we have to wait nine months. It's like, well, we're going to need to focus on speeding up that time. Maybe we can make it four and a half months. Like, no, that's not how it works. Um, So if 26 is what it is, and I don't know that 26 is what it is because I'm not, you know, uh, an electrical engineer that works at the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. But if 26 weeks is what it is, that's everyone's playing with those rules. You know, Amazon's playing with those rules, just like Ford is playing with those rules. And Mm -hmm. they all need to take that into consideration when sort of ordering their parts. Right? That's true. That's exactly right. And he says good news is coming. I don't know know what he means by good news. Uh, He says, but you can't speed up the process. Well, that's probably, both of those are probably true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're not necessarily independent or dependent on one another. Uh, in other words, in my mind, I just keep thinking of the computer industry. You know, back in the 40s, we had these huge rooms of computers. And they says uh, nobody will ever own a personal computer because they're too expensive. That's just the way it is. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. That's just the way it is. Well, that's not true. Uh, these things are computers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a computer in our pocket now. So technology advanced to where it solved that problem. And all I'm saying is, is that, well, in the future, 
this is a problem. And so I think in the future, this people might be looking at uh, maybe substitutions and maybe a different type of production process. Uh, I don't know. There's all different ways of looking at it. And they or say new inventions, even new inventions. They say you should never read the comments, but I'm looking at this article, and Ars Technica typically has relatively uh, astute readers, I would say. I mean, I don't want to say that, and then you say, oh, look at this guy, he's an idiot, he reads. But, pen for hire comments. The note in this article about qualification times is no joke. That's not production time, that's when you have a new fab, and it's putting out chips, you test those chips for quality control. So, I only know the passive device side of automatic components. AEC Q200 is a common reliability spec for us. 1,000 hour life, 42 days, is the bare minimum used for commercial applications. All the true automotive applications I know of require 2,000 hours, 83 days or more. And that is not always the end of the road. Most passenger car applications also require vehicle fleet testing, which only opens up every few years to combine multiple changes. For something like this, maybe they'd waive fleet tests. I don't know. So the process to qualify newly manufactured parts is another thing. And that's not, I mean, you could speed that up regulatorily and on a regulatory basis, but that would sort of be playing with the safety of the consumer. That's right. That's right. So when you talk about the 26 weeks, there's a lot of probably elements in that you're saying? Oh, 20, you're saying. 26 weeks is production. This is... You, t you produce 26 weeks, you get it to the company, but it's a new production line. You have to validate that production line for quality control, and that could take 83 days before you start testing it in fleets. So, so that's an additional 10 weeks on top of the 26 weeks that is uh, probably necessary just to validate that the new batch of that you've ordered is is ready for the road because you don't want anyone to die. Yep. And I, yep. those things are in place for good reason. I'd rather have a shortage of cars, but every car on the road has been validated to be relatively safe than to just say, oh, those rules, they're just pesky. we got to sell cars. Let's just wave them this one time. It'll be those ones that you wave. That's the one that gets you. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point this guy had. Very good point. So, I mean, he might work in... I guess he says passive device side of automotive component. So that's not even, I guess, the the things that control the, the moving. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes these people, they use their industry jargon, and we're not in that industry, so it's difficult to say tell what they're talking about. Uh-huh. Okay, we've done the automobile article. We've done the technical article. Um, and we're at 40 minutes, so I think if we do the financial article... Um, we'll probably make it to an hour. We could call it an episode. And I think I'm learning something, right? Are you learning something? Yes, I am. Yeah, this is this interesting uh, players in this in this problem. Let me quickly put the new link in chat. This is from a Bloomberg article. Um, we'll take a look at it. Why shortages of a one dollar chip sparked crisis in global economy. So I think this is sort of to get you to click. You know, it's like a clickbait title. Shortages of a $1 chip, crisis in the global economy. But it's kind of a compelling title. I like it. Let's see if I can make this bigger and where everyone can still see it. 
Okay, to understand why the $450 billion semiconductor industry has lurched into crisis, a helpful place to start is a $1 part called a display driver. Hundreds of different kinds of chips make up the global silicon industry, with the flashiest ones from Qualcomm and Intel going for 100 apiece to more than 1,000 apiece. Those run powerful computers or the shiny smartphone in your pocket. A display driver chip is mundane by contrast. Its sole purpose is to convey basic instructions for illuminating the screen on your phone, monitor, or navigation system. Do you have the article pulled up? No. They... Oh, you're paywalled? Yeah. Okay. Um, you could read it on my screen, I guess. Yeah. Um. The trouble for the chip industry and increasingly companies beyond tech, like automakers, is that there aren't enough display drivers to go around. Firms that make them can't keep up with surging demand prices, demand, so prices are spiking. That's contributing to short supplies and increasing costs for LCD panels, essential components for making televisions and laptops, as well as cars, airplanes, and high-end refrigerators. Why your refrigerator needs a TV in it, I still don't understand. <laughs> But we may come back to this podcast 20 years from now and be like, can you believe that in 2021 you didn't think that your TV needed a, uh, I mean, your refrigerator needed a TV in it? Could you imagine having a refrigerator without a TV in it? It's like, no, I can't. I can't believe that I thought that it was okay for your refrigerator not to have a big TV in it. Okay, getting back to the article. Um, it's not like you can just make do. If you have everything else, but you don't have the display driver, you can't build your product, says Stacy Ragson, who covers the semiconductor industry for Sanford C. Bernstein. That's what I'm saying about the little thing that connects my recorder to my camera. That's it's, right. I mean, otherwise you're walking around like this, and it just doesn't work. You know, if you just to have everything in one hand and it's all connected, but that little piece of metal, it's just as important as the uh, the the expensive components. Okay. Um, now, the crunch in a handful of seemingly insignificant parts. Power management chips are also in short supply, for example, is cascading through the global economy. Automakers like Ford, Nissan, Volkswagen have already scaled back production, leading to estimates for more than $60 billion in lost revenue for the industry this year. That is wild. That is some real money. Yeah, it is. The situation is likely to get worse before it gets better. A rare winter storm in Texas knocked out swaths of U.S. production. I guess, yeah, Texas Instruments, that's a semiconductor company. Um, a fire at a key Japan factory will shut the facility for a month. Samsung warned of a serious imbalance in the industry, while the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company said it can't keep up with demand, despite running factories at more than 100% capacity. Wow. I have never seen anything like this in the past 20 years since our company's founding. Jordan Wu, co-founder and chief executive of HiMax Technologies Company, a leading supplier of display drivers. Every application is short of chips. Hmm. The chip crunch was born out of an understandable miscalculation as the coronavirus pandemic hit last year. When COVID-19 began spreading from China to the rest of the world, many companies anticipated people would cut back as times got tough. I slashed all my projections. I was using the financial crisis as the model, says Ragson. But demand was just really resilient. Interesting. We could stop there because it's, you think the pandemic is going to reduce demand, right? Mm -hmm. So you change your models to factor in reduced demand like during the 2008 financial crisis. But the pandemic did not reduce demand. And that screws everything up because you're forecasting 
is not in line with reality. The world is short of computers. Oh, wait, that's uh, another article. People stuck at home started buying technology and then kept buying. They purchased better computers and bigger displays so they could work remotely. They got their kids new laptops for distance learning. They scooped up 4K televisions, game consoles, milk frothers, air fryers, and immersion blenders to make life under quarantine more palatable. The pandemic turned into an extended Black Friday online palooza. Automakers were blindsided. They shut factories during the lockdown while demand crashed because no one could get to showrooms. They told suppliers to stop shipping components, including the chips that are increasingly essential for cars. Then late last year, demand began to pick up. People wanted to get out, and they didn't want to use public transportation. I don't blame them. Automakers reopened factories and went hat in hand to chip makers like TSMC and Samsung. Their response? Back of the line. They couldn't make chips fast enough for their still loyal customers. Hi-Max's Jordan Wu is in the middle of the tech industry's tempest. On a recent March morning, the bespectacled 61-year-old agreed to meet at his Taipei office to discuss the shortages and why they are so challenging to resolve. He was eager enough to talk that the interview was scheduled for the same morning Bloomberg News requested it, with two of his staff joining in person and another two dialing in by phone. He wore a mask throughout the interview, speaking carefully and articulately. Wu founded HiMax in 2001 with his brother Bing Sang, now the company's chairman. They started out making driver ICs for integrated circuits, as they're known in the industry, for notebook computers and monitors. They went public in 2006 and grew with the computer industry. Expanding into smartphones, tablets, and touchscreens, their chips are now used in scores of products, from phones and televisions to automobiles. Wu explained that he can't make more display drivers by pushing his workforce harder. HiMax designs display drivers, and then has them manufactured at a foundry like TSMC or United Microelectronics Corp. His chips are, on, are made on what's artfully called mature node technology, equipment at least a couple generations behind the cutting edge processes. These machines etch lines in silicon at a width of 16 nanometers or more, compared with 5 nanometers for high-end chips. The bottleneck is that these mature chip-making lines are running flat out. Wu says the pandemic drove such strong demand that manufacturing partners can't make enough display drivers for all the panels that go into computers, televisions, and game consoles. Plus, the new products that companies are putting in screens into, like refrigerators, smart thermometers, and car entertainment systems. There's been a particular squeeze in driver ICs for automotive systems because they're usually made on 8-inch silicon wafers rather than more advanced 12-inch wafers. Some co-corporation, one of the leading wafer manufacturers, reported production capacity for 8-inch equipment lines was about 5,000 wafers a month in 2020, less than it was in 2017. No one is building more mature node manufacturing lines because it doesn't make economic sense. The existing lines are fully depreciated and fine-tuned for almost perfect yields, meaning basic display drivers can be made for less than a dollar and more advanced versions for not much more. Buying new equipment and starting off at lower yields would mean much higher expenses. Building new capacity is way too expensive, Wu says. Peers like Novatech Microelectronics Corp., also based in Taiwan, have the same constraints. The shortfall is showing up in a spike in LCD prices. A 50-inch LCD panel for televisions doubled in price between January 2020 and this March. Bloomberg Intelligence's Matthew Canterman projects that LCD prices will keep rising at least until the third quarter. There is a dire shortage of display driver chips. I'd like to stop here and say... 
I really should have bought a big screen TV last year. <laughs> <laughs> I screwed up. Okay. Yeah. This is a good article, don't you think? Yeah, it's a good one, yeah. Aggravating the situation is a lack of glass. Major glassmakers reported accidents at their production sites, including a blackout at Nippon Electric Glass Factory in December and an explosion at AGC Fine Techno Korea Factory in January. Production will likely remain constrained at least through summer this year, display consultancy DSCC co-founder Yoshio Tamura said. On April 1st, I.O. Data Device Incorporated, a major Japanese computer peripherals maker, raised the price of their 26-inch LCD monitors by 5,000 yen on average, the biggest increase since they began selling the monitors two decades ago. A spokeswoman said the company can't make any profit without the increases due to rising costs for components. All of this has been a boon for business. Hymax's sales are surging and its stock price has tripled since November. The U.S traded shares gained 1.6% in New York Tuesday morning. Just in one day, 1.6%. Novatech shares closed up 5.6% in Taiwan to a record high, pushing its increase to the year to more than 60%. But Wu isn't celebrating. His whole business is built around giving customers what they want, so his inability to meet their requests at such a critical time is frustrating. He doesn't expect the crunch, especially for automotive components, to end anytime soon. We have not reached a position where we can see the light at the end of the tunnel yet, Wu said. Wow. Fascinating. I think this, I don't know, I've enjoyed this discussion because we are learning about the global semiconductor shortage today. And I like the the three articles had three different perspectives and they both added a little something new. Yes, different perspectives. It's just... Well, it, it, I think it illustrates quite well that this problem is is not simple. It's complex and it's far-reaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's tentacles that goes all over the place, and it and everything's connected, and everything is affected. Mm-hmm. So, what are your takeaways from the Bloomberg article? Oh, well, it's, I, I he looked. They look at much more of the technical aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot more uh, the capacity uh, aspects, and uh, again, they're they're talking about the problems, you know. And so this, we have problems, and we're going to try to deal with it, and uh, we have to we have to attack it. So uh, there again, it uh, it's a good article to, to define, uh, to to describe and try to define sources of the problem. Mm-hmm. So. I didn't. I, I guess I missed it, but I really didn't see a lot of uh, uh, solutions. It's just like we are we're trying to respond and react to what's happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were that didn't seem like I don't know. Maybe I missed it. It didn't seem like they were saying, "Here's what we need to do." It's like here's what we got to do, short term, not necessarily what needs to be done long term. Uh, maybe I missed it. I don't know. Uh, I couldn't read it because I got a block over here. Yeah, it's, it's annoying. But hey, they got to make their money, right, Bloomberg? That's right. That's right. Um, that, I don't, I don't, does it, that's fine with me. It's annoying. I can't read it, but I totally understand. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I guess what I saw, and I think this is just t- completely fascinating, is the mature node technology and a different size wafers from the old, old wafers. Uh, those two things that I'm taking away from this article. So the 8-inch wafers, not the 12-inch wafers. 
So the new chips are made on larger wafers. Mm-hmm. Um, also, this node is a 16 nanometer node, and Apple's on five. I think Intel's still stuck on like nine. Five. Yeah. Um, or 10, whatever. Um, but the, the fewer nanometers between transistors, the more billions of transistors you can pack onto a little chip. That's, that's the uh, general, I think, physics behind. So that's the, the question is, do you want to invest billions of dollars in old technology? You know, it's like if there's a demand during the pandemic for eight tracks, do you want to uh, take the eight track factory out of mothballs and start producing eight tracks? If you know that once everyone gets vaccinated, no one's going to want eight tracks anymore. Um, it's it's difficult to sort of say, oh, we should invest. But then you look at the other end downstream, and the auto industry could lose sixty billion dollars this year. Um. That's more than 10% of the entire, they said that the semiconductor industry is $450 billion a year. I believe that was this article. Yeah. 450 billion semiconductor industry. Um, So if the auto industry stands to lose $60 billion, that's like 15% of the total semiconductor industry. now, I think that they know that by building a new excess capacity, by building new uh, dyes or whatever, however they do it, and sort of increasing their productive capacity for these older chips, it's going to be a non-starter because once the supply um, sort of levels out, the shortage ends, you're going to have productive capacity that you don't need. So that investment is a sunk cost. See what I'm saying? Yep. It's true. So the chip industry is saying, no, we're not going to build new productive capacity. You're just going to have to ride out the shortage. And they say, but it's going to cost us $60 billion. They say, yeah, but, you know, building new dyes will cost us $60 billion. So why should we eat the cost? Why don't you just eat the cost? We'll keep making them as fast as we can. It's And then, of course, there's guys like uh, Wu who owns Hymax, who designs the chips, who's saying, our business is based on being able to supply these things to our customers. And so our stock price is shooting through the roof, but our customers are unhappy. So I'm not happy that our stock has increased 100% since November because the only reason it has is because the way that I do business for the last 20 years is... I haven't been able to do it that way. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Like that, I liked that part of the story because he's like, I like to keep my customers happy. I like to get them the things they need. And the only reason I'm getting rich beyond my wildest dreams is because I can't get them what they need. It's, it's the oxymoronical nature of the stock market and supply <laughs> chains. And- yeah. It's a new world. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a uh, world that's changing uh, every single day. It's it's very difficult. It's hard. Well, I think this has been a very good insight into a uh, a serious problem that mm-hmm. that a lot of people uh, uh, overlook. Uh, but as it gets larger and larger, people start paying attention to it. So, what where you... something 
something kind of boring like oh supply chain mm-hmm. uh, until when it gets disrupted or uh, you have to shift and you don't have the ability to shift and uh, to to more demand people begin to notice how, how serious it is a lot of times we take it for granted but then it can be extremely important when you need it so as a professor of supply chain management I do feel like this wasn't a management issue. This was sort of an act of God. The pandemic changed fundamentally the industry. And then when it tried to come back, the industry had changed. How would you advise these suppliers <laughs> to go forward? How would you, su- let's say, okay, I want to take, if you're advising the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, I think they make more chips than anyone, or Samsung, um, would you advise them? to sort of develop more productive capacity. Now, if you're advising Ford, what would you advise them to do in the future? <laughs> so let's take the, the producer and the consumer. What would you advise? Let's start with the consumer. Let's start with Ford. They don't have enough chips. They can't make their cars. What do you tell them? Well, I think in general, on both the supplier and the downside, downside to, uh, user, consumer, uh, both of them, I would say, uh, you know, you have short term uh, problems and you have to solve things short term. So you have to address that immediately. Uh, but be very careful that you don't look at long term. You don't you don't sacrifice long term solutions for short term fixes. Uh, you have to look at the short term, but look at the long term. Again, from an academic perspective, you're always looking at the long term. Uh, from a business perspective, you're always looking at the short term. And I would uh, first advise, uh, don't just look at short term only, look at long term. Now, as far as long term is concerned, there's a lot of things you can do, uh, but uh, you can't do it by yourself. Uh, you have to partner, uh, create uh, partnerships and alliances. Uh, and I'm sure they have them already, but they have to be creative uh, to look at more of the resiliency to come back and also agility to move between. And you can do that with substitution of supply chains. You can do that with a uh, uh, different type of uh, called postponement. And so you have you don't have just two nodes. You have multiple nodes and you create uh, more flexibility with more more variability in the supply chain links. Uh, start thinking about how instead of having one supplier and, and one customer and having try more of a constellation uh, of suppliers, they coordinate. And uh, it's going to be difficult because, again, we talk about globalization and some of these sources are in multiple countries. Uh, and so, again, the globalization is going to be just as important uh, as the, the technology. Uh, and and the, as the technology grows in the different uh, countries, we have to have an ability to coordinate uh, your supply chain upstream and downstream. So downstream, you have these sources and upstream, I mean, uh, your requirements. Upstream, you have all these sources. Well, the sources have to supply the downstream. And so somehow they have to have interconnectability and interoperability. And so they have to start rethinking it to make it a little bit more, more flexible. That's what I would suggest. Uh, uh, now, I'll be careful going any deeper than that on how you would do it because I just don't know the industry that well. If I knew the industry better, I could give more more specific advice. I was going to say, if I was uh, if I was an executive at Ford, I would say, did you just tell us to focus on short term and long term? <laughs> and I mean, what about taking the Toyota approach of stockpiling six months parts? 
Yeah, I to me, I think that's a that's you have to do that for short term. I think it's more of a short term approach. Okay. That and what exists today, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Of, of course, have more buffer, have more buffer inventory. But if it exists, lock it in. But don't let that be a solution for all time. Yes. You know, start looking at at how to reposition the supply chain, how to reposition your suppliers, uh, and maybe even look at you have what's called constellations upstream for suppliers. Maybe you need more uh, uh, constellations downstream with competitors. Uh, so maybe there there are some other things you can investigate to where you don't undermine your competitors, but you coordinate with competitors where both it's a win-win kind of a thing. Uh, because if you keep a supply chain open, uh, then everyone's going to win. When everyone wins, uh, that's that's even better. Your success can be a success of your competitor, and their success can be your your success. Why? Because your supply chain is still healthy. I just think about uh, fifty thousand or fifty thousand F Ford F one fifties. It's their most high margin car, and that represents. Oh, it's just back of the envelope bit. Two and a half billion, five billion, five billion in sales. And they're not rolling off the production line because last March they didn't spend $50,000 to lock up $1 chips for them. So they lose five billion because they didn't buy $50,001 chips that are required to make the Ford F-150. And it seems like, I guess, yes, we're not producing, but why wouldn't you sort of order the supplies so that you can hit the ground running with your productive capacity, especially technological supplies like microprocessors. When you see that you're going to have to shutter your factory and you say, oh, we'll just order the semiconductors six months from now when the factory reopens. I mean, I guess it's difficult to, no one has a crystal ball and say, oh, no, no one's going to order semiconductors during this pandemic. But that's not what happened. You know, demand stayed steady or even went through the roof. And then when they come back into production, it's like, okay, we want to order. I just, it's crazy to me that one year can can screw up your automobile production so bad. Because I know for a fact, like, they lock in five, ten-year contracts on steel. They lock in these long-term contracts on raw materials uh, because you need a lot of steel to make cars. Why don't they do that with semiconductors? Because the technology changes. That's true. The other, the other thing is that uh, getting back to uh, you know the President Biden has uh, a hundred day uh, analysis of supply chain and semiconductors is one of them. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of short term things you can do like buffer inventory and and, and alliances and long term contracts. That's one thing. Uh, and that's what you have to do right now. You have to do that. So you need to sit down, table, do it with existing connections, existing technology, existing supply chains. But uh, longer term, uh, the semiconductors are going to be essential. Let's get back to national security, not just the, the sources of like rare earth minerals, but also the actual products themselves are going to be critical. And so you might have access to the rare earth minerals, but if you have a process to get those uh, uh, products to where they're needed uh, is going to be critical. 
maybe this 100-day analysis should be uh, trying to bring industries together to make the semiconductor users uh, and industries uh, that distribute them and also our neighbors uh, in other countries make because whatever the effort the uh, automobile and other uh, uh, companies that need it need it uh, well the military our military is going to need it too and uh, our government's going to need it for mm -hmm. for all different things surveillance and everything and and intelligence so it's going to be needed everywhere and it's not just a business uh, issue I think again again from my background it's, it's also a national security issue one to make sure that that industry is healthy uh, two for the economics and the financial health of the country but three for the capability of the interoperability of all of our systems in the United States and our neighbors uh, I think I think uh, in order to stay healthy in the future we have to think of the stability of the United States and the stability of our of our allies and our neighbors. Uh, make sure everyone. It's like it's not a zero sum game anymore. Uh, you have to make sure everyone is going to be uh, uh, benefit from this. But if everyone benefits from this, that's going to be a uh, a risk mitigator that one person doesn't become more powerful than others. Mm -hmm. So there, there is some some uh, uh, political risk mitigation, in uh, letting and uh, and having connections, and network, where everyone has is a player. Yes, and I mean the U.S. government is a powerful actor. I do see there could be a opportunity, and this will have its own repercussions. But I'm sure that Google, Apple, Samsung. Um, Amazon, they may have supply in their pipeline for their own products. And it's like, this could go into a Chromebook or we could sell this, we could produce 20,000 fewer Chromebooks and sell these chips to Ford, sell these chips to GM and at a huge markup. Or we can say, you're standing to lose 60 billion. We're not going to sell you a $1 chip for 2 billion. Uh, for, we're not going to sell you $1 chip for $2. We want to partner with you. We want a piece of the pie. We want to become uh, Google GM. We want to become Amazon Ford. And so not only do they become one of the largest technology companies, one of the largest distributors of goods like Amazon, or one of the largest arbiters of information like Google, they also become the one of the largest heavy manufacturers in the United States as well. And so they start sort of, the companies grow so big that they control the information and the the physical production of large, heavy machinery. I mean, that's a potential outcome, don't you think? Uh, yes, and that certainly presents problems uh, with uh, how much power they have. We've seen the power of information uh, you can also have the power of supply chain capabilities too, uh, but uh, I think I think within that is a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that you can't ignore it. I think what you what you're painting there is uh, uh, caution, mm -hmm. uh, but also uh, you know divided we will fail and united we will succeed. But 
when you unite, uh, you have to unite in a certain way that that everyone's going to succeed. Uh, so you got to be really careful that, that there's some real potential positive and negative there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it has to be examined. It has to be looked at and has to be uh, uh, dealt with. And as, and also, I think I think the government uh, should be part of these negotiations to support uh, to support them. But also support the the health, the financial health, the supply chain health, the production health uh, of the country, mm-hmm. and uh, so that it's a win-win situation for everyone. And uh, there is no there's no downside risks of one person becoming too strong. It's I yes, and I think uh, we've exhausted this, but I just find it so fascinating that the pandemic obviously it changed people's calculations, but in industries as mature and advanced as semiconductor manufacturing and automobile manufacturing one year where things are slightly different can throw off everything which to me it says you're just tied in too tight to one way of doing it mm-hmm. you don't don't have the flexibility but if you were tied into a separate way would you not be able to have the margins to compete the last 20 years that's true that's true. Uh, so, so, so maybe the future, David. Maybe the sons of Aquarius sitting here saying, "Well, you know, maybe the future on how you run businesses and how you run economies and how you run run uh, uh, factories is uh, going to be different in the future than it was in the past." Mm-hmm. And um, so we have to start thinking of this, and and that's true for pretty much everything. Everything has changed. I'm in education. Oh, I can guarantee you education is changing. It is not what it was 20 years ago. And it's not going back. Mm-hmm. It's going to be something different. It's not what it is today, but the future is not going to be what it was in the past. Maybe that's the same for for the commodities within the, the semiconductor industry and the commodities that supply uh, other industries within our country and the world. And I think also, as an individual, we may look back on this and say... The old adage, never let a good crisis go to waste. We sat on our thumbs and didn't invest in semiconductor manufacturers during the biggest crisis that we've seen in our lifetimes. Next time there's a crisis, we should identify who stands to benefit from this and try to get a little piece of that pie. Because I think that the the clues were there to follow. The breadcrumbs were there to follow. Mm-hmm. That... Uh, there's going to be a huge demand for semiconductors because there's a pandemic. Now, we didn't follow those breadcrumbs, but if we reverse engineered it and thought about it last year, like, yeah, everyone's going to be at home. Everyone's going to be doing virtual learning. Everyone's going to be using their laptop to communicate with people. The interface through which people view the world will be a screen. How do we get, how do we invest in that? Because I think that uh, display drivers like this company, that would have been a smart investment just because it's the opposite of WeWork. Do you know Do you know what WeWork is? Uh, yeah, I can't remember what it was, but They're yeah, like I'm familiar. Uber for office space. And they, oh, had, yeah. they had like a $20 billion valuation. I don't know the exact numbers. And they tried to go public. And when you go public, you have to release stuff to the SEC. And they looked through their books and they said, ooh, well, you have a $20 billion valuation, but on the books, you're not worth anything. And so their IPO <laughs> sunk the whole company 
But I do believe a bad investment to be in right now would be com- <laughs> commercial real estate because uh-huh. people are learning that big fancy office building downtown, not entirely necessary to run your core business. Um, you know, people can, uh, your workers can be very effective from a laptop screen in their apartments or their homes. And so do you need as much square footage as you think you do? Uh, so I wouldn't want to be in commercial real estate right now, but I would want to be in display driver manufacturing because instead of an office, people have a laptop and that requires a display driver. Well, I'll even go out on a limb because I don't, I don't know how many, how many listeners we have and I don't know who is going to listen to this, but hey, David, I'll go out on a limb. And I say uh, one type of uh, industry that is not good to invest in right now is traditional higher education. Yeah. It's not going to be the same. Well, I also think the the market is flooded. The market's flooded, too, don't you think? And the higher education that's trying to do it like we've always done it is is they're not going to survive. They're going to start spiraling down because uh, the, the people who want a degree can get a degree in a lot of places now and they can get it online. They can get it. They can sit in their home and get a degree from almost anywhere across the nation. And they can even have 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 take courses from MIT and Stanford and Chicago and and University of Texas. They can take it anywhere in the country from their home. They don't have to travel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in the future, you're going to be putting together programs that are going to be able to have the quality education from all over the country specific for a certain industry and a job. And who's going to support that? The industry is. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to go to a university. You're going to go to an industry program. And that industry puts together a program from all all universities. So the universities are going to still produce uh, the, the content but also that the industries are going to be using uh, the the uh, those those courses for their jobs in that industry, and they're going to have experts, almost like what uh, Cisco has done uh, with uh, CCNA or whatever CCNA CCNA. Yeah, their their program. Yeah. So there's programs that that are there, mm-hmm. but that's going to that's going to grow. There's where you should invest. Yeah, and I honestly think you know for. You look for inefficiencies in the marketplace, and I do see paying $25,000 every six months to get an undergraduate education. So, you know, a student will come out a hundred grand, 200 grand in debt um, with a bachelor's degree when the things that they learn are accessible on the internet for virtually free for $10 a month, you know, or whatever, alinda.com or a, you can learn that information. So it's maybe not about the material, it's about their networking, but you can also do networking online and sort of, the, what I see is the universities, they do sort of provide a place for research, um, but land grant universities from, you know, mid 20th century, they received a lot of public funding. And as that public funding, as the appetite for the states and the federal government to fund higher education goes away, 
that research becomes funded by the kids going $200,000 into debt to get an undergraduate education. And the you come out and you say, okay, for the next 10 years, I'll be paying my student loans. When they're paid off, then I might be able to buy a house. I'll be 30, 35, and I could start saving towards a house. Or I could figure out a way to get all that education for not $200,000 and I could buy a house at the age of 25. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, when you force the young people to shoulder the burden of financing the research, I think that's a fundamental disconnect. And I think when the, the government was more involved in saying, this research is important, we should fund it. It should be funded with taxpayers' dollars. It should be funded by people that are 18 working at McDonald's and people that are 55 and that they're in the corner office as a CEO, all those tax dollars should go and fund this primary research at these, these state universities. That makes more sense to me than saying, this is important, but we're not going to fund it. It should be funded on the backs of 18 year olds. So that by the time they're 22, they have a bachelor's degree and they're a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Uh, but at least this research gets funded. I, I don't see that as efficient of a model as the model that was used in the 20th century. And when it's funded from what you're, what you're explaining, mm -hmm. what type of research is it? Well, I also think you can't milk the students that long for that much. At some point, you're going to have to say, the students are going to have to make a calculation. Do I want to buy a $250,000 bachelor's degree. And I think the proof is in the pudding. What will it get me? If it's getting you less and less because it has less and less value. Well, you're a, moving into an area that I was thinking of. Yeah. A way to, another way to look at this is that 50 years ago, you hired people, but those people need to have knowledge and skills that they could, they could gain from the university. Mm -hmm. Okay. Today, you hire people. And the knowledge and skills are not necessarily from a university. You can get them online. Yes. Okay. But what they don't have is a degree. It's kind of like uh, the, the Wizard of Oz says all you need is a diploma because you are smart. Okay. Uh, universities do not make people smart. They just give them tools with their intelligence to make them more, more valuable. Well, those tools can be gained from other places now. So when people begin to realize that, uh, I, I mentioned this the other day, and actually I was laughed at. I said, instead of degrees, I think in the future, uh, uh, industries and companies are going to start looking at people and hire them who have certifications or badges or, or recognitions or completions of, of instruction. Okay, and those are going to be very focused on what you need for a job because people are smart and they need to learn on their own. Mm -hmm. And so actually I was laughed at and they go, that's funny. Uh, you can laugh, but I think that's going to happen. Uh, 50 years from now, we won't see universities anything like we are like they are today. I could see. Anyway. I mean, this is just we're now we're just sort of spitballing. We're off the semiconductor shortage topic, but. I could see a company developing an online portal where you sit down and it goes through uh, 
you know, the the resume interview process. Oh, let me take a look at your resume. And oh, this resume looks good. It ticks all the boxes. Let's uh, pull them in for an interview. Now let's call their reference. I mean, that's the traditional way of doing things. But what if you sat down at a computer and said, you want this job? Okay. For the next eight hours, run through these four modules. Each module is two hours. One will test your basic skills to do the job. One will be a Zoom call where you're interacting with real people, but they're our HR department and they're, you know, give, it's like an interview, but it's a, it's a real thing. You know, it's a real scenario. How would you interact in this situation? One will be um, your understanding of the industry as a whole or, or whatever you need. And you tailor specific online experiences and the person has to complete this. It's like a day at the job. And there's a way to have back-end metrics that say, this is the best person for the job. Um, and it's, it's sort of, it reminds me a little bit of Moneyball, if you've ever seen that, where the baseball scouts are like, oh, that guy's got a good body. He's got a good pitcher's body. And this kid, or this Jonah Hill kid, I guess it was two people in real life, they come in and say, no, we're in the, we're in the business of producing wins. So our offensive players need to be economically viable producers of runs. Our defensive players, like our pitchers, need to be ec- economically viable prohibitors of the other team producing runs. And we need to look at this from a metric standpoint. And what we're buying is a run producer. We're not buying a guy with a good body. We're buying someone that we can pay $500,000 for a year, and they'll produce the same amount of runs as a guy with a good body that's making $2.1 million a year. That's, I think that companies will start to understand HR in that respect. And they'll start to sort of quantify people on a, on, a, on a score. It's like, oh, we can get this person. And you'll look at factors that are quantitative, not just, oh, yeah, they were really gregarious in their interview and they went to a good school. It's like, no, we've tested them and they've produced these metrics via our system. And we know for a fact that this person quantitatively will be a better choice than the other one. And that's how the Oakland A's, you know, made it to the World Series with a budget that was 20% of the New York Yankees because they weren't saying, oh, this guy's got a good body. They were saying, oh, well, statistically, this guy produces the most amount of runs for the money that we have. I think that will come into effect as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, think you, I think there's a lot of truth to that, a lot of truth to that. Uh, but also you have humans have personalities. In addition to the value to a company, also you have the value of the individual uh, personally with the people he's working with. Mm-hmm. So you can have psychological uh, metrics as well, uh, personality metrics. Yes. Uh, how well are they going to blend with the people you are working with? Uh, and so all of that is going to be important. So a lot of times, I know I do a lot of uh, hiring over my year, over the years. Mm-hmm. And when you when you uh, talk to someone in an interview. Uh, you don't really question their ability to do the job unless there's red flags, and then you go after that, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of like a red flag that then boom, uh, we're done. Uh, but if you assume that they can do it or they wouldn't be in, in the interview in the first place, uh, what you do is you say how how well can they fit into our our structure here? How well they can work with us? And so the psycho the personality type part. Uh, the the 
the personality, the psychology, because uh, we're people. Mm-hmm. How well can they work? Well, now the psychology is not a personal thing. It's more or less a virtual thing. Yeah. How well how well can how well can they work virtually? Can they can they do they work well with this media that we're we're doing right now? Mm-hmm. Some people can work well in this, and some people can't. Uh, so how well they do? So that can also be done, like you're saying, David, with uh, with metrics that looked at the personality, the virtual psychology, and virtual personality. And how well do they fit with our with our uh, with our personalities? Mm-hmm. I think also it's going to be able to if you apply metrics and you use advanced analytics, you may be able to identify someone that is using this as a stepping stone. You know the way that people career, and they say, well, our our indication we have a eighty five percent confidence interval that this person will be gone in three years. The cost of onboarding a new employee is X. Um, this candidate scores second on the metrics, but we have a 30% indication that they'll be gone in three years. So the onboarding cost would be better spent on the second best candidate because we won't have to go through the onboarding costs again within three years, according to our predictive model. I, I think that companies are going to need to start employing metrics like this. And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, maybe some do, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of companies don't. No, they don't. I know. Well, I'm pretty sure they don't. Mm-hmm. I know some don't. The other thing is that along that argument, David, which is very, very good, you say, okay, they're going to be gone in, in, in three years. They're going to be gone in five years. But but the value they bring to the table during those three years mm-hmm. is enough uh, to warrant them being here and us going through the process in three years because they bring so much value then it's worth it. Yeah. So that's another issue that's going to be important. How much do we need them now? You know, and how well will they fit in now? And will it be valuable today that's for the true. next two, three, four, five years? And they're going to be gone, but that's okay because it's good for the company for them to be here during that time. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do it again and have someone else that's more long term. So you have a lot of issues uh, along these lines that, that uh, I don't know how we got off onto this. Oh, Education. Yeah, it's changing. It's changing. Everything is changing. And uh, we started with supply chains. Uh, well, I guess when you talk about supply chains in your universities and, and industries and businesses and people, uh, where's the supply chain of the people coming from, the workers? Mm-hmm. Where are they coming from? And I'll throw another wrench into this. <laughs> and I, I truly believe this is that Today, historically and today, the mentality of industries is we want to hire a person to be there 100% and give us everything they have in their job to do that, Mm -hmm. to do their job and do it 100%, 110% and just work them to death, right? Uh, That's kind of like a little bit of uh, equivocation, but anyway. I don't think that's going to be true in the future. Uh, if it's virtual, we want someone, we can have someone like that, of course, and they're going to be managing and working with people in the company. But then when we need things to be done, we can outsource these things to entities. Can We can have ability to say, this over here, they can do this particular job. Just do that job because mm-hmm. that has to be done. And so who are those people going to be? They could be anybody. 
They could be a 16-year-old kid in in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, doing it. Yeah. Or or an 18-year-old kid or a 21-year-old uh, uh, kid uh, in in Concord, New Hampshire, and they're doing that. Boom, they're done. Hey, yeah, I had a two-month gig with uh, blah 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 company, ABC company. It's like uh, uh, Patton Oswalt in his most recent stand-up. He said, "I didn't want to talk about Trump because." You know, that stuff gets stale. I wanted to talk about stuff that's real. And he talks about home ownership as, you know, a man in his 40s with a family. He's like, and when you own a home, you get introduced to the world of the contractor. And then you get introduced into the subworld of the subcontractor. <laughs> and he says, the, sub, the contractor, he's the guy that you interface with. And I think that there's an opportunity for this in the world. If you can sort of know what people are talented at and connect them with problems that they're capable of solving. And the contractor comes to me and he says, listen, Patton, sending a guy to your house tomorrow. He's very strange. He's very tough to deal with. But he is the Michelangelo of installing wallpaper. <laughs> so just stay out of his way. I will deal with him. He's going to be cranky. He might be loud. But you're never going to have anyone in this world that can install wallpaper better than him. I think that there's a lot of that. There's people you don't want in your company, but you want to utilize their skills for a, a minimal amount of time. Absolutely. Because it's business. Yes. And, and that could be wallpaper or that could be designing your cloud infrastructure for your app. That's I mean, right. that could be anything. And the person in the world that might be the best at designing the cloud infrastructure for your app might not be the type of person that you want to see every day in your office. No, you don't. Yeah. That's why the virtual is changing business. Mm -hmm. It's changing education. I don't want them in my classroom, <laughs> but I can teach them online because yeah. I, can, I can mute them if, mm -hmm. if they get out of hand. It says, oh, uh, okay, go right ahead. You know, like, oh, okay, you're going to be that way. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, you go right ahead. Okay, go, you know, and then I'll just blank me out. Yeah. And I'll just ignore them. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of. Uh, but the point, your point, very well taken, David. And and uh, so I guess everything, uh, the world of subcontractor, is not going through a prime contractor. I think uh, we can have managers and companies now, who are really like a prime contractor, and they don't need the people in house doing this work. Once they identify something to be done, they can outsource this. Uh, and uh, throughout, throughout, and mm -hmm. they can be very, very good at what they do online. They can come and go, come and go, come and go. And so you can be contractors. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing can be done with faculty. Yeah. Could I, I, uh, I, I teach here in Colorado. Could I teach a course in, uh, in Texas? Yeah, I could. Could I do tours in California? Sure. Could you teach a, New a course York? in the yeah, UK? Sure. You or the teach, UK. You could teach a course in the I, UK. I could teach a course in the UK. I could teach a course in Japan. Yeah, as long as it's they, English. As long as it's English. Well, well no, I've, I've people from Japan, they, they speak Japanese, but some of them <laughs> speak as good English as I didn't even know they're from Japan. Mm -hmm. said, wow, you speak good English. Yeah, I've been speaking it all my life. So anyway, you're right. Well, wow. how many things have we covered here, David? I don't know, but I know one thing's for sure. As we wrap up, I'm going to start playing the outro music is that we solved the future of industry 
the future of education and the global semiconductor shortage in the last 90 minutes, I think that's pretty good. I think that's a good day's work and we're just getting started. We got a whole day of stuff to do after this, but to wake up and solve those three problems, future of education, future of industry, and the global semiconductor shortage, I think we should be proud of ourselves. Well, we're just getting started. Not <laughs> only today, but also every morning or every day, uh, Monday through Friday, uh, the Sons of Sequoia, we're just getting started with solving these problems, right? That's right. So, is there anything you'd like to say to the people before we sign off today? Yes, I would like to tell everyone to keep on talking, uh, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what other people are saying. Bye. Bye.